People have used scripture to justify slavery. The Ku Klux Klan has called themselves a Christian organization. It, you know, wars have, of course, been fought in the names of all religions and continue to to be. Yeah. You're listening to Spiritual AF Sundays, Episode 47, Unmasking Manipulation, Power Dynamics in Religion, with guest Paula Swindle. You're listening to Spiritual AF Sundays, created and hosted by The Mystic Geek. If you're looking to explore intriguing questions about the meaning of life and our place in the universe, then you're in the right spot. We dive into topics often discussed as sound bites on social media and take a deeper look, whether it's woo topics like astrology and mysticism, or seemingly mundane matters like technology and politics, we cover it all. We explore our own thoughts and beliefs, talk to experts, and uncover hidden meanings. These fascinating areas of exploration can help us question ourselves and better understand our world. Ready to grow and explore in your spiritual journey? We're glad you can join us. It's time to start your week off by being spiritual AF. Hello, friends, fellow mystics, and spiritual rebels. This is Jessica, the Mystic Geek, coming to you with yet another perspective on this Spiritual AF Sundays podcast. This week, we're going to discuss a sensitive topic, when spirituality is used as a weapon rather than as a tool for healing. This experience goes by many names, religious trauma, spiritual abuse, or religious abuse. Before some of you start pointing fingers, this isn't exclusive to any specific religion. Many belief systems are life-affirming and remind us that we are love and that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. Unfortunately, whenever humans get involved, we occasionally muck things up. Some religions are more easily weaponized, though I think that's more due to the cultures that have formed around them rather than the faiths themselves. Before going further, let's take a moment to introduce our guest for this week's discussion. Paula Swindle is a licensed clinical mental health counselor in North Carolina who maintains a private practice called the Center for Healing Religious Harm. She's also an associate professor of counseling at Lenore Ryan University in Hickory, North Carolina, where she trains in new counselors. Last but not least, she and her pastor co-host Sacred Intersections, a podcast about navigating the twisty roads of harmful theology, mental health, and religious abuse. We discuss with that Paula into studying religious trauma. We also go into what religious trauma is, the three ways it manifests, and why it is so harmful. Given that Paula is a counselor, teacher, and podcaster, she has to navigate when and how to express her personal beliefs in each of these three roles, and we'll discuss this as well. It's time to grab your favorite beverage, sit in your favorite chair, and get ready for this exciting discussion. And welcome back, listeners. Today we have Paula Swindle with us to talk about religious trauma. Paula, I'm really glad to have you here today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. All right, well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, so I am a licensed clinical mental health counselor in North Carolina. So just basic clinical mental health counseling. I'm also an associate professor of counseling at a small college in Hickory, North Carolina called Lenore Ryan. So I 
train new counselors, but also maintain a small private practice called Center for Healing Religious Harm. So that is the focus of both the research that I do academically and the clinical work that I do. Gotcha. Religious trauma is a very interesting niche area when it comes to counseling. What drew you to study that? Yeah. So even that term in my research, we've tried to figure out if that's the best term for it. Is it religious trauma? Is it religious abuse? Is it spiritual abuse? But it is a very niche area. But unfortunately, there's a still a strong need for it, enough to keep me plenty busy in my private practice and in my research. In my field of counseling, you can practice as a counselor with just a master's degree. And so I was a counselor for a long time before I went back and got a PhD in order to pivot to teaching and to academics. So in that time in between, I was in a lot of different counseling settings. I worked in a lot of hospital settings. I worked in nonprofits, you know, agencies, things like that. And And I think it's really important that therapists at least check in to see if their clients, no matter what the zoning, if their clients are coming with any kind of spiritual worldview or religious worldview. And as you know, those sometimes are the same, but sometimes very different. And so in doing that, I kept hearing some really negative experiences of people with religion. And I personally had had really positive experiences in the small Christian church that I grew up in. And so As I heard these experiences across the board in all these different settings, I started noticing all counselors should constantly be checking with themselves to see what comes up with you (laughs) when you're, what reactions internally you're having. And so I started noticing just kind of, as I heard these experiences, kind of like wanting to say, oh, well, not everybody's like that, or not all churches are like that, or God's not like that. And that's not my place as a counselor in any way, shape, or form to Um, impose that or share my own values. And so I really started exploring kind of what was coming up for me, but also how to, as a counselor, to provide space for that and how to help treat that and realized I had not been trained in that at all. And so when I went back to pivot to training counselors, I actually did my dissertation on the topic of what I call religious abuse at the time. Now the term seems to be more religious trauma. but And so that research study really got me interested in just understanding the experiences and seeing what a need there was and how few counselors were trained to understand it. And so so it's kind of become the focus of a lot of my professional life. I still do research on it. I've got a podcast I co-host a podcast on the topic. I've written a book on it. So so it's really kind of taken over a lot of my professional work. Got it. So Paula, when you began, you were trying to figure out like the appropriate term to use for this. We've also shared the phrase religious trauma a few times. I'm a big fan of definitions. So in this context, what are we talking about here when it comes to religious trauma? That is a great question that academically and from like a research standpoint, we don't have a super great answer to. Unfortunately, that's part of what we're still trying to figure out is this, like, how do we define the term? As I mentioned, religious trauma seems to be the one that people are using more than others. I was using religious abuse. Some people use spiritual abuse. I specifically am looking at systems and institutions and the religious structures So that was part of my draw to using at least the term religious trauma in that. 
But even though I kind of hate to use the word to define the word or the term, how I think of it is any kind of abuse or trauma experienced within a religious context. So it could be sexual abuse is what a lot of people think of. I think when they hear this term, they think of like sexual abuse from clergy or from pastors. And of course, that falls under this category. But I think it's also a lot broader than that. So it could be any kind of emotional abuse, psychological abuse, financial abuse. And it's really at this point, as we're still defining this term, almost a self-definition. When people hear the term, they often kind of go, I don't know exactly how to explain that, but I know what that means. People are very reactive to this term. Everybody has some idea or oftentimes some experience with it. You've talked about these various types of abuses. What are the most common ones that you've seen specifically around either emotional or psychological harm that people experience in these types of situations? Yeah. In my research and kind of how I conceptualize it a little bit, how I have broken it down is there are three really broad categories, and then maybe I can give some examples within those mm-hmm. broad categories. So The first one is abuse or trauma experience where the perpetrator is a religious leader. So the research that I do often is specifically within the U.S. Christian church. And so that's often a pastor or an elder or deacon or someone with an official role. So examples of that would certainly be, as we mentioned, sexual abuse from a pastor or a clergy. It might be financial manipulation from that pastor. It might be pastors who single out or specifically bully members of the LGBTQIA plus community. You know, it might be any of that that's specifically coming from leadership. And then the second broad category is abuse that comes from the group or someone who represents the group. So it might be something that is a little more systemic. Like it might be a church that specifically excludes or bullies, again, members of the LGBTQ community. It might be the way systemic racism kind of weaves its way into these systems where it might just be someone saying they represent God or they represent their church um, with these things that are harmful. And these categories can overlap too, like (laughs) experiences can fall in more than one. And then the third broader category is where theology or the spiritual component is specifically used as a means of justifying the abuse or specifically used as the abuse. So it might be in a heterosexual relationship, a husband who is abusing his wife and justifying that saying she's not being submissive as the Bible says she should. And so kind of using scripture to justify what he's doing or parents who are abusing their children saying that they're not, you know, good enough or God is telling them to do that. So one of the things that really is a huge factor here is the dynamic of power and control. And for people who believe in a higher being and who name that God, you know, if you believe in God, there's nothing more powerful than God. And so people in any of those categories saying God's on my side and I am right because God's on my side is usually experienced by someone that's harmful and abusive. So those are kind of the three broad categories. So let me just stop and see if yeah. that's heard up anything for you. No, I mean, if you kind of called it out as you're talking about it with a religious figure. You're speaking to a power dynamic here. When we were talking about like group dynamics, we all want to be part of a group. We are wired as social creatures. We want to connect. 
we wants to connect. And I could see that as being a way of causing harm by threatening that person's sense of connection. That the argue from a position of authority, from a lay person going through and saying, well, God's on my side or scripture's on my side, that allows me to do these things that if we did not have though that as the excuse, a bystander would say, this is terrible. So it's, yeah, it feels like when it comes to, to religious harm and religious trauma, a lot of that is based around power dynamics wrapped with a religious wrapping on it. Yeah, a religious justification. That's exactly right. One of the things that really interested me about this was looking to see, I mean, trauma, abuse of any kind is power dynamics are at play, of course, and is horrific. I was really curious to see if when you bring that element of the sacred in, if that amplifies those power dynamics and it, you know, it seems like it does. But you, the term that came up in a lot of my research that I think is so powerful is the term legitimized inequality. You know, so any, and there's a great researcher named Beverly Green who has a great article that I got this, that term from that that when you have a, something with power legitimizing your oppression of someone or your abuse of someone, you know, then you feel justified in that. And that's what this twisting, I believe, would use that term twisting of um, sacred text or of a mm-hmm. belief system that, that is doing is this legitimized inequality that is not okay. Yeah, it's even making me think of relatively current events where religious texts or religious beliefs are being used for one group to have power over another group. I mean, this has been going on for as long as religion has been around. Unfortunately, I can remember hearing stories about the civil rights movement. And even at that time, churches making it seem like white supremacy was the biblically appropriate option. And we're still, again, we're seeing it. Every new issue that comes up when it comes to human rights, some subgroup will defend the atrocities using religion. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, people have used scripture to justify slavery. The Ku Klux Klan has called themselves a Christian organization. It, you know, wars have, of course, been fought in the names of, of all religions and continue to, to be. Yeah. But this is something that happens on every level. It happens on a very micro level. And that's what I do in my counseling practice when it's just me and one other person and kind of trying to help provide a space for some healing around that. But, but it happens on the macro level with all this global stuff that we regularly see and then everywhere in between. Uh, in every community. Um, and, you know, it, I live in, I mentioned North Carolina, you know, the South where re- where Christian religion especially is, is baked into the culture. And so, so there's definitely a lot of just that expectation around that that can be felt kind of as a, on a different level, not quite the micro or not quite as big of a ma- yeah. macro. It's, it's everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And you're in a very unique position because you're a counselor, you're a researcher on this, you teach it. And I'm assuming you also have your own personal spirituality. So how are you able to balance all of these different aspects of your life? 
Yeah. Thank you for asking that question because it's something that I am constantly examining in myself and processing and trying to just kind of constantly be clear on who I am and what I'm bringing into the counseling space and what I'm bringing into the teaching space so that I'm never free from bias, but I'm at least aware of the biases that I'm bringing in. And so I try, I try (laughs) to compartmentalize Mm -hmm. as much as possible with my role as a counselor and my role as a teacher and my role personally, my role as a podcaster. Um, So as a counselor, I teach my students, it's not about you as the counselor. It's always about the client needs and providing space for them, meeting them where they are and allowing whatever. And you could have your own beliefs, but they should never, you know, influence the client. And and so I tend to shy away from self-disclosure in the counseling role to try not to. But I found in doing this work, because people have been so harmed by people in power and by people who said they were trying to help, and maybe even people who called themselves counselors. And because I recognize that being a counselor comes with such power, I don't want it, but it's just inherent yeah. in that relationship. I've found that my clients who seek me out because I founded a place called Center for Healing Religious Harm, that they actually often in the free consultation I want to do, they ask me, what do you believe? Because they want it because it's important. They want to be sure I'm not proselytizing. They want to be sure I'm not, I don't, I'm not coming in with an agenda. And, and so I am much more transparent than I would be normally with clients at that point. I might say, you know, I personally do still consider myself to be a follower of Jesus. I'm careful with the word Christian because it has been harmed and twisted so many different meanings for so many different people. And a side note, I just believe so little of the Western church reflects the Jesus that I know and understand, but, but I'm also clear to say, but in this role, I am not here to influence you in any way, and I am not here to guide you in any way. If you, you know, are working through some deconstruction and want to a a safe space to do that without an agenda, I can do that. And if you end up an atheist or agnostic or no label or whatever label you want or need, that's totally fine. I'm not here to impose something on you, but I want to be transparent about that because in my podcast, I do talk a lot more about my personal beliefs and I don't want a client to feel betrayed if they come across that and hear me talking about that. Um, and if you're not comfortable with that, I will help you find someone who does not share the same beliefs that I still do in, at this point um, because it's not, I'm not the best counselor for everybody. I want to, I want people to find the best counselor for everyone. So, so I still don't have any agenda or really don't want to have any agenda other than providing space in the counseling role. In the teaching role, I'm a little more transparent with who I am just to try to model that self-examination for students and that we should always be figuring out who we are and and recognizing how that could impact the work that we do. And then on my podcast, I co-host it with my pastor, Jill Izola, who she kind of brings theological components and I kind of bring the mental health components and you know and we don't want that to be proselytizing either but we she's pastor so we're gonna talk from that person yeah and we 
even though we don't, we're not trying to to proselytize or convert people. One of our many goals is a different narrative of Christianity than what is out there. You know, in a lot of ways, as judgmental and hateful and exclusive and that kind of thing. So that's why I'm a little more transparent in that more public space, which feels really weird. I don't love it. Really vulnerable. And as a researcher, I try to be completely objective and just try to have a good research team that holds me accountable for that. Got it. So it's different levels of transparency or openness based on the role there. It's interesting and amazing that from the counselor world that you have people proactively asking you about that, which shows that they are very interested. I know you can't give specifics because of your role, but what types of responses have you had to you being open like that? In my counseling role, clients seem to really appreciate it. And for me, authenticity is really critical no matter what role I'm in. Like I can be authentic and not necessarily be talking about myself. So, so I really want to model that authenticity. One of my rules that I'll tell my students a lot of times, kind of like when in doubt, lay it out. So I just, I say that to clients and say, I'm just going to be as transparent as possible. And I'm not sure what you want to hear, but here's kind of where I'm coming from. And I have found them to be really appreciative of someone who's not trying to dance around. What do I say about myself? But, oh, I'm not allowed to talk about myself as a counselor. And the podcast has been probably just personally a little more vulnerable. I've had students who listen to it sometimes <laughs> and kind of come and share their thoughts, which I love to hear their thoughts. But it's just a little bit more of myself than I would normally share. But mm-hmm. I found generally people appreciate it. So... So overall, it's been positive. You know, it's when you're vulnerable, you're taking a chance that someone's going to be safe with, that someone's going to honor the information and that it's a safe person to be vulnerable with. And as you know, as a podcaster, when you put stuff out in the world, you never know if how people are going to interact with it. So I think it's just a risk you take, but it's been worth it, I would say, overall. Good. I'm glad to hear on that one. And so we've been going talking for a little bit on a lot of different topics on defining religious trauma, all of those different experiences that you've had, how you've been able to balance the life. I thought I was busy, but researcher, <laughs> yeah, counselor, researcher, professor, and then also having to deal with your own stuff. I mean, yeah, we've definitely covered a lot. Uh, I didn't say other- I'm doing any of it well. I'm just <laughs> I'm trying to do it. I'd say that you're doing it pretty well with everything that you've shared so far. With that, do you have any wisdom that you'd like to share with our audience at this point before we go? You know, I I have listened to several of your episodes, so I imagine, you know, that your audience, that nothing I'm saying that religious trauma exists is surprising to anyone. I, I imagine probably some of that's been experienced by your listeners. So I would hope that someone just feels seen and heard. You know, you ask some of the experiences and I kind of talked about those three levels, but to get more specific on those experiences, you know, to feel really betrayed by people who were supposed to take care of you and people who were supposed to help you is very common. Deconstruction is something I see a lot. And I just, I don't, again, don't know that your audience really needs to be reminded of this, but a good thing to do, like that examining what you believe and being willing, you know, if something can't stand up to scrutiny, 
then it's fragile to begin with. Like it's not the scrutiny that makes something fragile. So, so to find someone safe that can help you with that deconstruction process, if that's something that you're doing and that religion should not have been weaponized against you. If you are a listener hearing that, that power dynamic should never have been weaponized in that way. But unfortunately it is. And there are some counselors out there that are really good at this and there's some counselors that are not. So, so I would hope that I would love to say, please go find a counselor to help you with this because there are many of them out there. And to take some of the stigma that still exists out there around seeking mental health services. And I'm happy to share some of the colleagues that I have that are working in this area if someone's looking for a counselor. Good. So with that, how can people reach you? Yeah. So there's a few different ways. I've mentioned the podcast a few times. So if people would like to hear me talk a lot more about all of this, it's called Sacred Intersections and it's on all the different platforms. People can find me on Instagram at Dr. Paula Swindle. That's D-R-P-A-U-L-A-S-W-I-N-D-L-E. I don't post a ton, but I'm there and I'm happy to interact with people. Mm-hmm there as well. I do have a textbook. Since we're on video, oh, I have it here. Let me show it. <laughs> For those on the podcast, we have a... <laughs> it's a textbook. It's not like the ones that you can use for pl- pressing flowers. It is a decent sized one, though. So. <laughs> it's, it's not too bad, actually, no. overall. <laughs> so yeah, for those of you who are watching the video, you can see it. But if, for people who have listened to audio, it's called Counseling Survivors of Religious Abuse. And I wrote it with a couple of my colleagues, Craig Cashwell and Jody Tangent, and they're fantastic. Another link that will be there is the agency that I mentioned, the Center for Healing and Religious Harm. And so I provide counseling services for people in North Carolina for that, but also consultation services for any. So I'm happy to connect with people who just are even trying to figure out where to start if that's something they need help with. Thank you so much for sharing and thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. What a profound discussion. Let's recap. We examined how religious trauma can occur through emotional, psychological, and financial abuse. We also broke down the concept of religious trauma into three categories. Abuse perpetuated by religious leaders, abuse stemming from the group or its representatives, and abuse in which theology or spirituality is manipulated to justify horrific acts. While abuse by an authority figure or through group pressure is not unique to religious trauma, what makes this so harmful is that it's done in the name of a higher power. This creates an added layer of confusion, guilt, and shame for survivors. Given Paula's role as a counselor and teacher, she has to navigate how open she is about her beliefs with the power dynamics of those respective environments. Her emphasis on transparency, authenticity, and relentless self-examination in her roles was truly inspiring. For those of you who are keen to understand religious trauma or are navigating through your own process of deconstruction, I highly encourage you to revisit our discussion for further insights and a rich perspective. Do you know someone who has experienced religious trauma or is going through their own healing process from it? I would love it if you share this podcast episode with them. This concludes this week's episode of Spiritual AF Sundays. And remember that religion is meant to connect us to the world around us and to a community that shares the same beliefs. It should not be used as a weapon against fellow believers, 
or as a justification to harm others. And if you have been harmed, it is okay to seek help and dismantle any toxic beliefs or practices that came from that upbringing. That's all for now. Have a spiritual AF week. Thank you for joining us for Spiritual AF Sundays. This show is hosted by the Mystic Geek, that's me. Got comments or questions from today's episode? You can either email me at jess at themysticgeek.com or send me a voice message at speakpipe.com slash themysticgeek. Don't worry, I'll put the link in the show notes. Help others start off their week with a Spiritual AF Sunday by sharing this episode with them. Also, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts help spiritual seekers find our show. So do the thing.